and welcome. Today we're going to continue in the same passage we looked at last week because um, I felt that I didn't have really enough time to address everything that is in here. And I think there's a lot of important information when we talk about previously about miracles and about demons and their role in the world and even demon possession. And really the how do we interact with that in a thing I call religious professionalism. I think it's always interesting that I often feel that God puts in my path things that he wants me to know before I come here on a Sunday morning and share with you <clears throat> because he knows what a, how lazy I am, so he has to bring it right to me. But it was really fascinating as I was sitting watching the History Channel, or it used to be the History Channel, now it's called the Paranormal Channel, I think. Um, but they were featuring a faith healer who has this 18-wheeler. He drives around the country and sets up in these little meetings, and he walks around. He has a very ornate cross, and he goes around, and he holds it up, and he waits till he, the eyes of somebody demon-possessed catches him, and then he drives the demon out, supposedly. It's quite, a, quite an entertaining program. It never mentions the name of Jesus, but it's this cross that he carries that seems to have so much power in it. And I thought it was quite interesting as I was watching it because as I, I saw people having demons cast out, I haven't had that experience a lot. I've had it more than I want. And it looked nothing like any experience I ever had. In fact, <clears throat> I think they were some of the best paid actors I ever witnessed. We have to understand that even in a story like this where it says these Jewish men went around driving out evil spirits, it doesn't really ever tell us that they were actually successful or it worked. Uh, it's hard to say one way or another. But there are some vitally important things for us to understand in terms of how we understand the way that God works, not just in this context, but in context of general and, and how easy it is for us as the church in our modern age with being so impressed with our own technological advances that we forget that at the end of the day, the Lord said, it's by my spirit. Let's pray and we'll get into this. Father, I ask as we look to your word today that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and there would be a receptiveness, Lord. I'm absolutely convinced that unless your Holy Spirit uses the things that we do here today to minister to very specific and important issues in the lives of every one of us, that nothing really of significance will happen. It will be just another event with a bunch of people. We'll come in, we'll go out, and we'll be unchanged. We are here today, Lord. I think the vast majority of us here because we see your word as a change agent in our life. Your truth, you said, would set us free and it would give us depth of insight into not only the ways of God and into our own selves, but how that we can live our lives effectively, successfully in this present world, and even what effectiveness and successfulness means for the child of God. I pray, Lord, you just give us that discernment to distinguish so we might walk rightly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, the focus of our reading today is the attempted exorcism of a man who, or woman who was demon-possessed, and uh, we don't know who the person is. We're not even given any more of the story of how this person actually ended up. It doesn't leave me with a sense that it ended up all that well, because it never says the demon really came out of the man. It just beat the snot out of the guys who were trying to do it. It's interesting, in the original text, the word that's used here is exorchizo, and it means to adjure or to implore or to command a demon to, to exit a body that it's taken possession of. And the attempt not only left the demon fully in residence, it had failed completely, but it brought significantly bodily harm to those who attempted to expel it. My own experience is similar in that it's amazing that sometimes you'll see a, what I would say, a, a 90-pound young lady uh, who skinnies a rail pick up a full-size man and throw him across the room, and that's when you realize that she's not in there alone. Uh, what is further intriguing, though, is that the practitioners in this particular effort, the men who were trying to do the exorcism, appear to have done this as a line of work. It was their career. They traveled itinerantly from place to place, supposedly expelling spirits, and I have to assume that the fact that they continued to do it, that they must have been making a decent living at it. It was paying off. 
Again, we have no, uh, no record of how many hits, runs, and errors they had in their endeavor, but we know that they must have been hotly sought after because it was a serious issue. Last week, I talked about how in places like Ephesus, with the Temple of Artemis and many other temples, there was a lot of demonic oppression and activity going on, much similar, I think, to experiences I found in India where people also worship demonic spirits. But it's interesting because when we look at this, we might ask the question, well, what qualified these guys to be exorcists? And we're told that one, that they were Jewish. And according to first century Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, well known amongst the Jewish community then and now, that a person who was a holy man, a Jewish holy man, oftentimes would have the renowned reputation of being able to exercise demons. And they did that especially through what they called having possession of secret words. And that's where the second thing comes in. It says that their father claimed that he was actually a chief priest or to translate it in more biblical language, a high priest. Now, this is an important claim because if his father was a high priest, then the high priest supposedly had knowledge of all of the hidden names of God by which they could wield great power and work miracles. There is a whole branch of of Judaism today which is called Kabbalah. And Kabbalah basically is the mystery part of Judaism where they engage in a lot of magical incantations. And they have all sorts of secret words that if you say these certain words in a certain order, well, I'll just read how they explain it. That when you say these particular words in a certain particular way, that there's energetic permutations of letters that create tremendous spiritual vibration. I call it flatulence, but then again, that's just me. But this idea, of, I think we have oftentimes things he's written with these really words that I had to admit, I had to look up permutation because I thought, what is a permutation? And it's really nothing more than a vibration. But essentially the idea that you could actually move things and make things happen, that God spoke and he created the universe, I buy that one. But there, therefore, if you and I know those words, we can control things as well. It's part of what's called the positive mental attitude movement, which also moved into the church and became the word faith movement, where people began to say, you create with your words, good or bad, so your fate is really in your hands as long as you speak the right words. And I... I I often like to speak very negative words around people who believe that. But but fortunately, the record of Jewish high priests is is a very, very complete. We know every one of them, even up to the destruction of the temple in the time of the Jews, in, in the time of Rome in 70 AD. And there is no mention of any high priest by the name of Sceva. In fact, the name Sceva is not a Jewish name. It's not even a a Greek name. It actually comes from the Latin. It means left-handed. And left-handed was kind of a slang term for somebody who was a dishonest, double-dealer, untrustworthy, scoundrel, a con man. And so here again, we don't know if this was actually this guy's name, unfortunately. I mean, did he pop out of his mother's womb and dad said, Sceva. Or was this something that he acquired as a reputation? Or as some suggest, it was really a pseudonym that Luke gave to this individual just to kind of reveal what was really the character of the man. That he was basically a, uh, an apostate Jew who famously, falsely claimed to have some connection to the high priest, which would then give him a bona fide, certifiable uh, uh, reputation as somebody who knew the secret words and could take, uh, say, the right incantations over someone. But I think the thing there is that was really missed by these uh, sons of Sceva, what really got them in trouble, is they un- failed to understand three really basic truths about demons. That number one, demons are more powerful than people. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, he said, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power in the name of Jesus to demolish strongholds. So that the weapon that we most often use is called the weapon of prayer. 
One of the worst things that you can do is to assume that you can overpower a demon. In fact, Jude put it very simply in his short little book. He said that even Michael the archangel wouldn't rebuke Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. So, Interesting, Psalm chapter 8, it says that God made man lower than the angels, and yet what drives the demonic angels crazy and causes perplexity even amongst the holy angels is that he promises to lift man, exalt man above the angels. But until that happens, you're kind of powerless against these forces in and of yourself. And that's why going through life without the Holy Spirit living inside of you always leads to a a perilous journey because you're going to come against things that you can't overcome, that you can't get through. Someone once asked me, or just asked me the other day, it says, I wonder how people survive the hardships of life without knowing Jesus Christ. And I said, not very well as a rule. They have some good times, they have some bad times, but they also find that there always comes this point of saying, I've missed the essential purpose, reason, and meaning for my life. And I can't identify it, I just tell you that I feel it. There's just a void there in my life. And that, for some people, causes them to begin to search for deeper answers. Other people just seem to uh, try to indulge in more and more things to keep themselves from having to think about how empty they are on the inside. But it's really important for us to realize that demons are more powerful than us. And when I've had to deal with praying for people who are demon-possessed, I, 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 it's not, not something I get real excited or, or look forward to. It's not really a pleasant experience. It can be oftentimes a very, very ugly and, and, and unattractive experience. But one thing I know, I am not going there to pray for that person Through my power, it's the power of God. He is greater than any demonic presence. But secondly, they didn't seem to understand that demons fear God, and they also fear praying godly people. I absolutely believe the worst moment in a demon's day is when you say, let's pray. The very thing that can combat him and drive him out of your life and out of your situation and out of your circumstance is when you begin to say, Lord, I ask that you would address this problem in our life. I pray that you would resolve it. It's amazing to me, I think more amazing probably to the angels, how little access you and I make of our prayer life. I mean, here's the most powerful tool that has been given to us. God says it's right, the heart of your weaponry. When he talks about the armor of God, you know, the shield of faith, the word of God, and so forth and so on. But three times he says, pray, pray, pray. That prayer is really the the ultimate expression of God's power released through those who pray. And many people worry about, well, I don't know how to pray exactly correctly. And this is where we get caught up in this idea of you've got to say it in the right way and, and, and phrase it actually as if the way that you say it, it has some kind of inherent power to it. Do you realize that your words... Even your best words when you pray your best prayer and everybody in the prayer group is looking at you and say how spiritual she is. Even that best prayer that you're really proud of and you wish you had written down before you said it so you could keep it for posterity. That Paul tells us in Romans that even that very best prayer, the best phrase prayer you ever prayed, that the Holy Spirit has to take your heart prayer and translate it into the language of heaven so it makes sense in the heavenlies. He intercedes on our behalf. Now, I'm putting it a little bit ridiculously in a sense, but I absolutely do believe that's true. That I don't think that the essence of my wording is what really matters. What really matters is the essence of my heart and what I'm feeling. And that when I ask God, sometimes I just say, oh God, and he answers my prayer. The most powerful prayer in the Bible is one of the shortest prayers. Remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And he you know, puts them up to this contest. He says, okay, you build an altar and I'll build an altar. You put your wood on it and I'll put wood on mine. You put your sacrificial animal on it and I'll do the same thing. And then we'll douse it with water over and over and over and over again until it's flooding all over the place. And he says, this is the only requirement. You can't flick your bick. In other words, don't start the fire. Let's just step back and see if fire comes from heaven and whatever altar is consumed by God, that's the one 
who has God's favor. That's the true God. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, you can tell. And I love it, the prophets of Baal. They spend six hours. They're shouting, they're screaming, they're raising their voice, they're shouting in tongues, they're saying hallelujah, they're singing the whole Hillsong songbook, they're going through everything, they're doing every gyration they possibly can, And Elijah, after several hours, starts taunting them. That's the part I like. (laughs) He was sarcastic. God bless you. (laughs) It's biblical. (laughs) He's saying stuff like, well, maybe you should shout a little louder. He might be hard of hearing. Or maybe, and literally this is what the Hebrew suggests, maybe he's in the can and can't come right now. I mean, it's just, maybe he's gone on a long journey. (laughs) And so they start cutting themselves. That's what they would do. They'd cut themselves, bleeding all over the place, shouting until finally they come to this point after six hours of total exhaustion and nothing happened. And it reiterates that over and over in, in 2 Kings. Nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. And when they're laying in exhaustion, then we find Elijah just says, Lord, Show them that you are the true God and I am your prophet. Bam! Fire comes from heaven and consumes everything. Now, I look at that and saying, God, now what are you trying to tell me? That I should spend hours ranting and raving and maybe if I cut myself? And See, I look at these prophets of Baal talking about having faith. They had faith to spend six hours doing one thing and cutting themselves in the end and bleeding all over the place and ending up anemic and exhausted. And yet what you were looking for was something different. You weren't looking for excessive performance to prove that you were deserving of God's answer. What you were looking is somebody who simply humbly came to you and said, God, would you prove yourself to these people that they might know that you're the true God? and that I'm your servant. I think we we miss that sometimes, and we miss the fact that when you come to God, and it doesn't have to be well thought out or well expressed, but when you just simply, in in your honesty of heart and humility of heart, come to him and say, God, would you please fix this? The Holy Spirit takes that simple prayer and translates it into the most glorious language of heaven, And God says, I hear. I think where we get frustrated is that he doesn't necessarily move as quickly as we'd like sometimes. But I have been amazed at the times that he has. That if there's one thing I know that demons are terrified of, it's not men, it's not important men, it's not proud men or powerful men, but it's praying men and women. That's what God is moves through, and that's why the demons hate it when you pray. And so, by the way, that's why you have such a hard time developing a prayer life. It's not just your own bad habits. I'm sure that contributes. But the fact is, is you have to understand that there's a spiritual resistance because if God's people start seriously praying about serious things, things begin to happen. Changes begin to take place Literally, the God who said, let there be light, is the same God who can speak into any situation that you and I have right now and transform it in a millisecond. There's one third thing these guys didn't understand. He's that demons cannot be cast out through formulas or rituals or incantations or even by evoking the name of Jesus. It's interesting that over the years, there's a certain set of uh, techniques that have developed in the exercising of demons. In fact, in the 17th century, the Roman Catholic Church got so upset because they were trying to cast the demons out of people who had like bubonic plague, which didn't seem to work, that they came up with a whole guideline on how to exercise the demons and what it looks like. And they have this whole ritual that you go through and it involves holding up the cross, the rosary with Jesus on it and sprinkling it with water and saying certain rote prayers and doing all this sort of stuff. And uh, I don't know if you ever watched The Exorcist. Apparently it doesn't work. Uh, But the whole point is that it's, 
they even have fumigation. I like this when people will take, you know, to, to purify the, get, get the right juju in, a, in an office, they'll burn sage branches and fill it with this smoke. And, you know, somehow, I guess demons just can't handle smoke. Uh, I don't know, because they're the one who created cigarettes to begin with, so I, I don't get any of it. But the bottom line is demons, the only power that drives out a demon is the power that's from Jesus. And that's why when he sent his 12 out, he said he called his 12s to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits. Again, in Luke, he said, they returned with joy, said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. It's in his name, in his power. And to address them with anything except Jesus Well, I think that's the greatest mistake that the sons of Sceva made was that they thought that Paul was driving out demons by a mechanical exorcism when the fact is Paul wasn't driving out any demons. Jesus was the one doing the exorcism through Paul. And if you ever have the unfortunate chance of having to do that, just remember that when you pray for that person, that you can't drive that demon out. It's Jesus who has to drive it out. And the more you're convinced of that, the more you'll depend on Jesus to do the work that needs to be done. Well, because of these three facts, Jesus is the only person in the record of history that had a 100% success rate at casting out demons. I mean, five separate times we're told in the gospel, for example, in Matthew 8, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word. Later, Jesus explained to the religious elites of his day that this was also evidence that he was the Messiah when he said in Luke eleven twenty, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. I like that phrase, the finger of God, because you, the idea is your, your finger is actually one of the weakest parts of your body. If you want to control somebody, you know, just grab their finger and push it back, and you can pretty much bring, a, bring the biggest man to his knees. Not the biggest woman, but the biggest man. You can bring him to his knees. And that, that's the idea. Essentially, he's saying even that, that weakest appendage of God is so powerful that it can drive out the demons and they have no power to resist him. And Jesus said, do you need any other evidence that I'm the Messiah? Well, they said, well, you're obviously driving out demons by Beelzebub, which is uh, a name for Satan or the Lord of the demons, the one who rules over them. But it's interesting, the same could also be said of the apostles as far as their success rate, if it were not for one exception. Um, <laughs> it, it's... It, what we were told about when Jesus returns from the Mount of Transfiguration, he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with uh, Peter, James, and John, and he left the other nine back in the valley, and people were coming to them for prayer and healing, and we're told that there was a man who brought his demon-possessed son and asked the disciples, the apostles, if they would drive the demon out. And he tells Jesus when Jesus finally arrives on the scene in Mark 9, he says, teacher... I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Afterwards, when the disciples asked Jesus, why could we not drive out the demon as they had done so many times before? We just read how he had given them the power to do that, and they'd had the experience of driving out demons, and yet this time they could not, and that honest question, why not? To which Jesus said, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, the King James adds fasting, but it's probably a a textual gloss that was added in in later translations, but it's not a bad practice. You see, various commentators have offered really differing opinions on what Jesus exactly meant by that. This kind comes out only by prayer. But the thing is, uh, well, I'm going to throw my hat into the ring. Why do I think this was Jesus saying? Remember how shocked the apostles were the first time they went out and uh, cast out demons? In Luke 10, 17, it says when they returned, <clears throat> they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, that is really significant to me, that statement and the way it's phrased. Even the demons submit to us in your name. <laughs> 
there's a subtle point in, in serving the Lord where we begin being, uh, we know that we're way out of our depth. We know we're doing things that's way beyond our, our pay scale, if you will. I remember the first time I was asked by my pastor to teach a Bible study. It was a big crowd of maybe three or four, but um, I just remember how stressed I was because I had never done this before. I'd not done well in, in speech classes in high school or college, and uh, and I remember trying to find a passage to teach on, and I began to have all sorts of health effects. I mean, things like headaches, nausea, diarrhea, and I felt like vomiting. And uh, I mean, I was scared to death, and yet I felt like God was saying, I want you to do this. And so I was trying to be obedient, terrified. And so when I sat down and opened up my Bible and read the passage, and I would read a verse and then I would comment on the verse, I suddenly found that words just started coming and I started talking. And I remember the second time I did that, there were three girls, high school girls, who were sitting in the front row, a much bigger group, and all, all six of them gave their lives to Christ right there in the spot. And I thought to myself, I didn't know I had it in me. And that's where I think a line we cross many times. When God does something with us that's clearly God, we say something we know, I didn't, that didn't come from me, that came from someplace else. That insight, that understanding, that grace, that kindness, it, it flows out of us. And when we start to learn to walk in that, there's this point where we begin to say, well, I know it's the Lord, but he did use me. I mean, I know it's God, but <laughs> he did choose me. And there must be some reason that he's chosen me because, I mean, obviously there's something about me that's a little bit special, and I know it's the Lord, you know, and, and me. Uh, it's just a subtle thing, and I don't even know if I can describe it clearly enough because it is such a subtlety that slowly takes over. And I've seen it for people like me where suddenly we begin to realize that we're anointed. Now, Gail Irwin used to always say, what's so special about having a greasy head? And, <laughs> you know, they pour the anointing oil on the head for those of you who know. But it's such a, such a subtle thing that you begin to think it's something about you, that, that you got up here. And even like today, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll get up there and I'll share with you. And somebody will come and go, oh, pastor, that was really, really good. I, I, I'm sitting there very humbly saying, well, yeah. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I worked a long time on that. <laughs> God was very clear to show me about preaching. He said, you know, when you put a sermon together, it's kind of like Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. I look at my notes, I read through them, and I sit there and say, Lord, can these words live? Because if there's anything that lives as a consequence of it, it's the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. The, sun, the importance of being in that place where you realize that God does give us the capacity to be used effectively for him, but there's a danger that when we, as I've often said, touch the glory, and we begin to think it has something to do with how special and unique we are. Years ago, uh, David DuPlessis said, you know, flattery will never hurt you unless you suck it in. And then it becomes toxic. <laughs> and that's always the danger, isn't it? We get lifted up. We get lifted up. When David sent out Joab to number Israel, Joab said, the Lord can add to you as many people as he wants. Don't do this evil thing. And he said, nope, I'm going to do it. And then God judged him for it. But I often reflected, isn't that really the the sin du jour of a modern Christianity in the megachurch world. I remember going to conferences and having guys think, so how many of you are running now? I'd say about 40 head. You know what I mean? It's like we, we have this numeric metric where significance is based upon numbers. How many people are on your Facebook account? 
And suddenly those things become the externals that we use to measure our worth, our importance, our significance, our impact. How does prayer play into all of this? As Jesus said, prayer is the ultimate act of submission and acknowledgement of utter dependence upon God. If you are sincerely, genuinely, really, honestly praying, you are submitting yourself to God and you are acknowledging that you're dependent upon him and you approach him with this attitude of dependence because as Paul said in Romans 4 or 5, the one who does not work but believes, his faith is credited as righteousness. So here's my suspicion. I suspect the apostles become so accustomed to casting out demons they began to view it the same way the sons of Sceva would have. It was an acquired skill. They had learned the proper technique. They developed their approach and their execution. And they lost sight of the invisible, all-powerful finger of God flowing through weak and flawed humans. Here's really my point. Why I put in the topic religious professionals. Ministry can be done in the flesh. And when it is done in the flesh, even when it's done by people who are true and sincere, it becomes a counterfeit. It's an imitation of the real. It's not the real thing. I had someone gave me a, a, a Rolex watch. <clears throat> um except when I wind it, it sounds like a bag of rocks. Um, and I said, well, this is, this is a counterfeit Rolex. And they said, no, it's a very good imitation. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that makes it better. <laughs> no, it's, it's a fake. It's a fake. Unless, of course, you're interested in buying it. I got the box and everything. <laughs> but we need to understand that we can do things. I understand what terrifies me before I come up here and stand in front of you is that I know that I've done this long enough. I know how to do certain things in certain ways that you can manipulate people to be responsive and to be happy or sad or, you know, it, it, it's, you learn these ways of doing it and you stop coming with a total dependence upon the Holy Spirit and saying, God, unless you make these bones live, that's all they'll be is a valley of dry bones. I believe today that there's a great deal of counterfeit Christianity, maybe everywhere, but I just know it in the terms of our own culture. And I find so often when I get advertisements and things that come for conferences and different things. It's, it's really kind of strange because there's a lot of how-tos. I mean, how to grow your church, how to become a megachurch, how to find that power ministry, how to build your budgets. I'm surprised at how many very clever ways that they have come up with to suck your money out of your pocket and put it into mine. How to build an online presence that impresses those who go to your site. How to use big da data to identify and track your target audience. I actually was, had a pay, they paid for me. I was going down to, needed to go to Texas anyway. And they paid for me to fly to Texas to, a, to attend a conference by a group that I had done some stuff with in the past called Big Data. And I'm such, I mean, I'm so out of it. I didn't know what Big Data even meant. Um, but what it was all about is how you can use computer data, how you can harvest it and begin to, really kind of set it up for exactly for your community so that you know the names and the backgrounds of every person within a five-mile radius of your church. 
And they said the value of this is that you can go to any door, knock on it, and you know their name. You know how they voted in the last election. You know whether, they, whether or not they go to church and where they go to church. He says 500 data points on every single person. He said the same thing that the elections campaigners use so that you can target your message to them and increase your effectiveness. I thought, wow. And as this conference went on, I just found myself getting exhausted thinking about it. I left early, but I tell you what I noticed really on. There wasn't one word of prayer offered from beginning to end. We didn't open with prayer. I'm pretty sure they didn't close. Nobody ever stopped and said, hey, can we just pray for a while? There was no reading of scripture. And yet I thought, here are a group of pastors, most of them young men. I was the only fossil in the group. And that's probably why I, in the discussions, I probably, <laughs> they must have thought, this guy is so out of it. But it just struck me that what we're really getting down to is nickels and noses. It's, or as I often crudely put it, it's bucks, buildings, and butts. How much bucks can you pull in? How many buildings can you build? And how many butts can you stick into the seats? Rarely have I seen conferences that really talk about how to strengthen your personal prayer life, how to build a Christ-like marriage in the ministry, how how to really develop deeply your personal devotional life, how to, how to walk more humbly and more graciously and more loving, especially when you're experiencing levels of quote-unquote success. How do you keep from touching the glory? Rather, it's about winning. Not the lost, but the marketing battle of your church and your community. The other churches are your competitors and you're trying to outperform them so that you want to make sure that you have a winning brand um, like this. This is my brand. Plaid. You want to make sure that... Um, you have a rock and worship band, that you have supercharged services. That, and most important, you need to be, have relevant, relatable messages that engage as well as entertain, but very carefully watch your step that you do not offend anyone, which is something I'm, I'm slavishly committed to. And whatever you do, do not go more than 30 minutes because people can't remember what you've said long before that moment comes. As one I had recently put it, he said, the American obsession with celebrities and bigness and entertainment and success has filtered into American evangelical Christianity. So more and more pastors and churches or leaders are looking for the winning formula that will make their ministry successful. Is that why the Pew organization said that right now 40% of pastors are looking to leave the ministry? Maybe because they just can't meet the performance expectations. It's not... The Bible doesn't offer Christians a winning formula. It actually does. But it's a diametrically opposed contemporary to the contemporary message out there of the megachurch and how to become a celebrity pastor. My view of me becoming a celebrity pastor is a lot like I was talking to an NFL quarterback one time, and, he, and, and I, I just knew this would be a good one for him. I said, you know... I could have played pro ball. And he got that look on his face like, oh my gosh, not another one of these. <laughs> I said, you know, all I lacked was talent, ability, and skill. And also, I'm pretty slow. <laughs> you know, it's like, so you have these people who want to be <clears throat> Justin Bieber in a collar or something. 
And yet Jesus kind of messes the whole concept because he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will find it. In fact, in Luke 6, 26, he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. This may sound really strange. I don't want to sound like I'm masochistic, but actually when I get those emails that tell me what a, a dunderhead I am, I really kind of thank them for it. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding me that I am, in fact, a dunderhead who's getting away with murder. But maybe all, one of my all-time favorites is how Paul described himself to the Romans. Remember, he'd never seen them. His letter is his, really his first additional impression upon them. What they think of him and his theology is going to be based upon this letter that he's sending. And, and quite honestly, because he didn't have the right PR firm, he started off completely wrong. And the reason he wasn't available because the PR guy he had picked was working for the Biden campaign. But, you know, the point is, I had to bring it in someplace. I mean, what? <laughs> but listen how Paul describes his qualifications. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant there, that's, we've, we've kind of modernized it, anglicized it, because we just don't like the word slave. But that's exactly what Paul said. I am a doulos. A doulos was a slave who was the property of someone else. A slave was a non-entity, a person who had no personal worth or value in and of himself. In fact, Livy, the Roman writer, said he is nothing but a living tool. Now, I've been called a tool many times, but not in that context. But that's the whole point. He says, who am I? I am first and foremost. What I want to be known more than anything else is not who I am, but who I have enslaved myself to. That's my, my identity. And we live in a day and age where people are so crazed by the idea of establishing identity. How excited we are. Facebook is going to come out with a metaverse where you can create a virtual version of yourself, an augmented reality, a virtual reality, so that you can create who you are. In fact, remember they got that TV show, don't they, where people get up and sing, but you don't see them sing. We see their virtual image. Man, I need that. But how obsessed are we with images so that, well, let me be honest, when the reason I don't put my face on Facebook is because I won't use post-photo processes. I just would have to put my real face, and that scares anybody. So why, I mean, but we're, we're obsessed with this idea somehow that if we can fake it, we can make it. And I wonder sometimes, I, I see somebody's, picture of them in their, on their cards or something else like that or on their, their website, and then I meet them in real person. And I ask, do you know where this person is? <laughs> I mean, it's like, whoa. Rough drive to work today? <laughs> I don't know. But what do we think we're doing? And Paul said he just, he shed all of that and he said, I, this is who I am. The slaves who were the lowest status, most important, un, unvalued part of, they were merely property to be used for their owner's purpose. That's who I am, first and foremost. He doesn't start off saying, Paul the apostle, seen Jesus with my own eyes, the raiser of the dead, the healer of the sick, and the casting out of demons, and the writer of amazing, powerful epistles to the church. This is a rotten resume. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And I was called to be an apostle. The call there means to literally be summoned and commissioned for the job. You don't go out and pick your job. You're told what your job is. I remember the day when I was really feeling sorry for myself some years ago. And I was thinking about it. I, this ministry stuff is just, it's so, Lord, they're not being nice to me. <laughs> and I'm having this conversation with God and God said slaves can't quit 
Slaves can't pick where they work, their hours that they work, their compensation or their conditions or even who they get to work with. They just do what they're told. So in the name of my son, shut up. (laughs) He didn't say that, but I felt that. Paul recognized he was God's tool who had been placed in the situation that he was in. And then he says, set apart for the gospel of God. The word set apart really means marked off by a boundary and limited. That God has taken my life and he has put it here. He said, that's who I am. I'm here because God put me here and told me to do this job. And he wasn't begrudging it. But according according to John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul, and uh, that the way up seems to be the way down in God's plan for life. When John the Baptist says in John 3.30, he must increase. The word increase, or octano in Greek, literally means to increase in status, to become more important, to enjoy greater respect and honor. Jesus must be the one who is really elevated in all of this. And keep in mind, this is where John had been creating this huge ministry following, and suddenly he's telling all of his followers, don't follow me, follow Jesus. And he did increase or decrease, which he said, I must not increase, he must increase. I must decrease. I must have lower status. I must become less important. I must become less respected, less honored, that the attention should not be upon me, it should be upon him. And shortly after that, he went through a major decrease. He had his head cut off. I think it's important to remember that Paul ended his ministry by being beheaded, not with a book or a movie deal. They cut his head off. Remarkably, he was able to spread the gospel without any media technology except the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not criticizing anyone who uses tech because that would make me a total hypocrite. And if we're using it to spread the gospel without promoting ourselves and trying to make a name for ourselves, I I don't see that that's a problem, but I think when we do things, we have to ask ourselves all the time, not how do I do it, but rather why am I doing it in the first place? Why am I doing it? I found over the years when people have come with these great suggestions for ministry, and, and I've simply asked the question, why would I do that? Why in the world would I do that? And I've been given a lot of answers over the years, the only one that really makes one sense is when the Holy Spirit says, because this is my will for you. Because if that isn't what's going on, you may be trying to do the thing they accused Jesus of in Luke 11, 19. You're trying to drive out demons by Beelzebub. That when we try to use worldly techniques to reach people for Christ, we're really playing, I think, into the evil one's hands. You see, we hear so much today about being relatable and being relevant and being culturally connected and about being woke. I realize that the minute I use the word woke, I have proven that I'm not, which is not a real problem for me. But it was Os Guinness who years ago in his book called Dining with the Devil put it so astutely when he said, the the fastest way to become irrelevant is to strive to be relevant. In a later book called Prophetic Untimeliness, another great book, subtitled A Challenge to the Idol of Relevance, he wrote the following, much more in depth. Hope you can follow it. He said, by our uncritical pursuit of relevance, uncritical pursuit, we we pursue it without thinking, is relevance really the goal? Is relevance all that important? He says, we have actually courted irrelevance, irrelevance, by our breathless chase after relevance without faithfulness, we have become not only unfaithful, but irrelevant. 
by our determined efforts to redefine ourselves in ways that are more compelling to the modern world that are rather than faithful to Christ, we have lost not only our identity, that is, as a church, but our authority and our relevance. Our crying need is to be faithful. Is there anything in the world that is more relevant to men of every age than the cross of Jesus Christ? Is it something that we have to, I, I love the subtle conversion efforts, kind of like we, we present the gospel in a way that we can kind of sneak up on people and, and, and get them saved before they realize what hit them. I'm thinking of Nacho baptizing his friend, if you ever saw that great classic award-winning movie, Nacho Libre. Thank you, there were some of you who... Yeah. See, the sons of Sceva were doing what I'm afraid many times we do in ministry. We're, we're trying to increase our status, to become more important, to enjoy greater respect and greater honor. That somehow we think it's an achievement if we're in a photo shot with somebody who's a celebrity. When the news spread that Kanye West had become a Christian, and people I know tell me he certainly has, I said, that's wonderful, but here's my concern. Who's going to take him out of the limelight and disciple him so he doesn't become an embarrassment to the church? See, when I got saved, I would have been an embarrassment to the church if they let me out in public. But people took me aside and quietly they let me be discipled, let me grow. And they allowed the gifts that God gives an individual to manifest the role that they play instead of giving them a title that they try to live that they haven't earned or isn't qualified to fill. And we've done that over and over again that celebrities get converted and then we try to turn them into Christian celebrities but they barely know the Jesus they just met. And the results are almost always disastrous on every, if not several levels. Which strikes me when we come to the end of this passage, it says that after the men had been beat up, I mean, you think they're going to cast out, in the name of Jesus, cast out the demon. Instead of the demon losing, the demon wins. You would think that would be a mark on the church's eye, you know. But it says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. What were the scrolls filled with? The very kind of incantations that the sons of Sceva were using. Magic words, power words, phrases that are sure to do this and sure to do that. And they calculated the values of the scroll that came to 50,000 drachma, which is about four to five million dollars in today's value. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Who was honored? Not Paul. Jesus was held in great honor. What was the impact? People came and confessed their evil deeds and they rid themselves of their false practices, false beliefs, even though it was incredibly costly. I remember when a friend of mine, when he got saved, he had in his possession, you know, a bag of marijuana. And, and so he, he said, well, since I'm a Christian, I can't smoke this anymore, so I'm going to go out and sell it. Tried to explain, no, what you do is you flush it down the toilet. I guess that's not okay anymore. But anyway, and he, got, he would just dumbfounded. I mean, he, 
that's worth a lot of money. And, you know, argument ensued. And, and finally, uh, we hit him over the back of the head, took it and flushed it. But um, no, not really. You just took a while to help him understand that that wasn't the way to go. But what I find so amazing to me is <laughs> how, again, this never hit Facebook. This wasn't on Twitter or Parler or Rumble or, Rumble or Instagram. or How in the world did they preach the gospel? There's no television. There's no media. There's nothing. How did they do it? It just said the word spread widely. I have found that the rumor mill is one of the most effective ways, far more effective than the internet. I would simply say to this you today, why are you here? How did you get here? And I bet you the vast majority said, well, you know, I had a friend. And they said, hey, you got to check this out. That's how it worked in the first century. That's still how it works. That's still how it works. Somebody just simply says, when I go there, I feel God speaking into my life. I mean, that's, that's the long and short of it. God's speaking to me. That's why when Jesus called his disciples, we, we always call it the four steps of discipleship. Number one, he said to them, come and see. Just come and look, see what's going on. And after they'd watched him for a while, you know, we, we forget, we overlook it that Peter had been listening to Jesus probably for as long as six months before Jesus finally came up to him and said, come and follow me. And we look at that and saying, well, he dropped his nets and Matthew walked away from his tables. And how do these guys just leave their livelihoods? It wasn't like it happened all of a sudden. They'd been listening to Jesus preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum for a long time and in the streets and in houses and all around the place. And finally, when he came up to said, drop what you're doing and follow me, they did it because they knew what they were following. But later on, he would come and say to them in a way, come in. Die with me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And then finally he said, because you've come, now I want you to go and repeat the process. It's just really that simple. It's not, not terribly complicated. We live in a cha challenging age but I think it's really interesting because we're finding more and more, discovering more and more that people are not as moved by technology and media as we think. The one thing I think, the, very, the one positive about COVID, COVID, or I should say more specifically, the one positive about the lockdowns was it made you and me aware of how much we need this how vital community is, how important it is to be able to see each other on a regular basis, how important it is to have people that fully know me and yet they still fully love me. That's what everyone wants. We want somebody who fully knows us and, and, and still loves us. <laughs> Because we live in a world where people are so afraid to be known because they're convinced that if you knew who they were, you wouldn't love them. And when you find a place where you're loved, even though you're known, there's a freedom, there's a liberty, there's a sense of community, and there's a sense of calling that grows within that community that becomes irreplaceable. My desire, my prayer is that that you didn't come here for the worship. You didn't come for the short video in the beginning. <laughs> you didn't come to hear me talk. Above and beyond, you came for everything that happens here. There's, there's a thing that happens in our lives when we gather together in his name because Jesus simply put it this way, where two or more are gathered into my name, there I am in their midst. So we come together in his name because we yearn to experience him in the dynamic 
that apparently is different than any other den. I know people say, well, I can find God anywhere. I go out in the woods and I can commune with God. And I think that's absolutely true. But somehow it isn't the same when even it's just one or two other people and you're out in the woods and you sit down and you start talking about the Lord and you start reading his word and you start praying together. There is a presence, an invitation for the Holy Spirit to come and be the prevailing presence over your gathering. And my prayer is that that's what we do here every week, that we invite God to be the prevailing presence, that his Holy Spirit would dwell in us richly and that he would overflow into one another's life in a way that is life-giving, a way that is healing and that's transformational, that I don't have to Photoshop my Facebook account so that I look like something that someone would want to be attracted to, but instead, well, my just that anonymous face, so anyway, what is it? But it's just, you know, none of that matters. But what really matters is you're known by God and you're known by God's people because he's brought us together in a sense of community and it's out of that that the Holy Spirit moves word to word, place to place, that people just begin to say, God meets me in a special way. Why do you go to church on a Sunday? Well, I know it's a break because the game doesn't start until one thirty. but nonetheless, why do you come to church on a Sunday? And it's because God meets me in a wonderful and special and unique way that I just don't get anyplace else. So I've told my staff, I said, We're, let's not pay any attention to what any other church in the world is doing. Let's not try to imitate anybody. Let's not try to be Hillsong or Bethel or, please Bethel, or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about demons, uh, <laughs> or Elevation or something like that. We're, we're the brown paper bag church. <laughs> That's why we have an eight cent tithe. But years ago, some high flying pastor, uh, big ministry, big church, came to town, invited me to have lunch with him. And I thought, wow, I must be beginning to get some recognition around the country here. Must be my star quality looks. And so we sit down, we begin to eat lunch, and he says, so, what's the secret of your church's growth? And as I begin to open my mouth, he says, I know, no, no, you're going to tell me it's God, but I mean, okay, let's, let's get past that. But what's the real reason your church is growing? I said, it's God? <laughs> I think I was a very disappointing interview. But the, you know what terrifies me more than anything else? Is if I'd had another answer. And too often, people want a different answer. What is your life but a vapor that appears a moment and passes away? We're just, we're here for a moment. My wife knows, I, I, I used to spend a lot more time trying to collect old books. My wife, especially religious books, Christian books, Christian literature, and uh, <clears throat> got a few real cool ones, but she comes home from the secondhand store one day with this, this uh, nice-looking book, really nice shape, written back in the late 1800s, and it was a compilation Get this now, <laughs> I mean to impress you here. It was a compilation of all the sermons of Sam P. Elliott. Have any of you ever heard of Sam P. Elliott? I'm reading the introduction. It's talking about these massive groups, 10,000 people in this city and 10,000, and he's doing this. And I start reading his sermons and I think, I'm going to steal this stuff. It is really good. A man who had a huge impact in his lifetime, and then he died, and everybody moved on. And suddenly it struck me, one day you will die, and everybody will move on. Maybe sooner. But how foolish it is to spend our life for some earthly accomplishment. 
because only that which is done for Christ will last. Father, I pray that you'd help us to hear with our hearts and not just our ears, to understand, God, the the challenges that every one of us faces. We, We came to you, Lord, and most of us had scars from our childhood. We we struggle with significant issues. We struggle, struggle with our lovability and all these other kind of things that become all the psychological treatments du jour. And we get hung up on that stuff, Lord. And we forget that we are nothing more than the bond slaves of Jesus Christ because there's no higher place for us to go. There's no other greater work than to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ who is committed to seeing you increase in the world, not their own increase. And recognizing that all that matters once we've lived our life is the fact that after we've spent our 4,000 hours we're allotted on this planet, we will stand before the God of the universe. And how all we want to hear, Lord, in that moment is for you to say, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of the Lord and there will be no looking back, just moving forward into your eternity. Lord, I pray you'd bring us to that place, that heart that we recognize this is the prize of the high calling. This is our destination, that this is the definition of what success is, to know God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.